All right, why don't we join in prayer as we start. Lord, we thank you for uh, the blessings you've given bolstering Joan as she's dealt with her health struggles. We ask that you continue to bless her, strengthen her, give her perseverance, and, and according to your work in good health. And also continue to uphold Dan as he is healing and recovering and struggling with his foot issue. We ask that you will give him continued strength and recovery. And also, Lord, as a we're looking that my family will be traveling. We ask that you give us a safe travel until we can come again back to Payson safely. And as we open your word, once again turning to the prophet Isaiah, we pray that you bless our minds and our hearts, that we're built up, encouraged, and edified. Amen. So chapter 42, God calls his servant to be a light. We looked in, just to recap real brief, chapter 41, uh, God called Israel my servant whom I've chosen. And he talks about calling Israel from the ends of the earth. So God has started using this theme of having a servant and calling different people his servant. Now we're going to see, I guess what you might call Israel in the fullest sense. Israel, if Israel were, were truly able to do what God required of a servant as a holy servant, a perfect servant. So that's what we see introduced here in chapter 42. We've, of course, seen things that talk about the Messiah, but chapter 42 is going to have some additional direct prophecy, things that the New Testament says is, is fulfilled in Christ. I guess we'll start with just verse 1. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. So we'll pause there. So God says he's going to uphold his servant. Anybody have a different translation there? Okay. So I establish, strengthen, uphold him. Notice how that contrasts with the idols, right? Go back to the previous chapter to 41 verse 7. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith, the one who smooths with the hammer, spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. So even the workers who create the false idol need to kind of like spur one another on. And then you get to, one says of the welding, it is good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. They're, they're, it's kind of like they're lying to themselves, right? They're convincing themselves that what we made is, is strong and good. And then they have to hold it, fasten it down with nails. And who's upholding this servant? The Lord himself is upholding the servant of the Lord, my servant whom I uphold. And you can see God doesn't have to convince himself that his servant won't falter or fail. We're actually going to read not just that contrast that God is establishing him, but it's going to describe how he will not fail. And that's going to be kind of the emphasis for the first part of the servant. So um, can you discuss the possible interpretations for who might be referred to as God's servant? God calls many people servants, and people take on the title servant of God. Jesus was a servant. Okay, so we have the title servant applied to Jesus, yeah. Um, he says, I came to do my Father's will. And he is really carrying out the will of the Father as he came to this world. So yeah, Jesus is one interpretation. Whenever you see my servant... You could think, well, is it the Christ it's referring to? What are, what are other 
ways that servant could be interpreted. Yeah, it could be a prophet. Maybe some people, you know, think, what is it Isaiah? Is this, you know, God talking to Isaiah and Isaiah is his servant? You know, Isaiah is going to go out and he's going to have the Holy Spirit and he's going to share the word. Certainly, you can see a partial fulfillment here in Isaiah himself. Some people will take even that, you know, the Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. They'll say, well, that must either mean Isaiah or the Messiah or... What are some other interpretations for God's servant? My Bible says Judah. Judah. Okay. Judah. Is that like a footnote that you have there? Yep. It says the context of these verses point in the first instance to Israel or Judah filling the role of a servant. After all, 41, 8 through 9 addresses the nation as the servant. Yeah, so that's another interpretation, Israel itself. And I was going to point us back to those verses. If you look at verse 8 and 9 of the previous chapter, it just says, You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. So another possible interpretation of whenever you see God's call on his servant is the nation of Israel. And I guess the Christian Standard Bible Commentary pinpoints that towards Judah because I'm not sure... Exactly why. Maybe because they're talking about Jerusalem and Zion. One thing is that uh, servant is not capitalized. Okay. And chosen one is not capitalized. Yes, yeah, so you do have an interpretation there. Uh, the, the original Hebrew didn't have you know capital and, and non-capital letters. So when we're looking at this, your Bible has to make a choice. And they, they have to say, is this like the, the servant, a proper noun, S? Or is it just a servant uh, among many servants, not a proper noun, title? So your, your Bible will make a choice. My Bible made a choice here. I got the NIV with spirit. Once again, there's no capital, uncapital letter in Hebrew, but they chose in the English here to capitalize spirit in verse 42, verse 1. Yeah, they have capitalized spirit. So their, their interpretation is they want you to know God is talking about the Holy Spirit, right? The Hebrew doesn't have that, but that's the way that they're pointing you. So it says, he's my chosen one who pleases me. Okay. To me, that just, um, it, when Jesus was baptized and, and God said, this is my son whom I've chosen, with him I'm well pleased. Yeah. There is an echo to Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I love, with him I'm, I'm well pleased. That the Father's echoing the prophecy of my chosen one in whom I delight. Yeah. Definitely. So if you're going to take the interpretation that it's Israel, that, that part probably struggles a little bit, just even that point. You know, does God delight in Israel at this time? Not as a whole. He just spent, you know, look at Isaiah's first half of his book. It's woe is you, woe is you. And look at what we've seen so far about the people of Israel searching for and turning the, the wrong places. So even if you take it as Israel, you have to take it as the remnant of Israel, the faithful ones in Israel. All right. So, yeah, the, the possible interpretations of serv servant are, are many. You know, David and Moses were designated by that title, the servant of God. Uh, God uses his servants basically to carry out his work in the world. So, broadly speaking, who God's servant is in the book of Isaiah can be rather broad and wide. It doesn't just have to be Israel. And th those that want to make it just Israel have to acknowledge Cyrus is basically considered God's servant too. And he's an unbeliever. 
but he's someone that God chose to carry out his work in the world, even though he was an, a godless leader that was leading his armies to crush the Babylonians. So, Can I read a little note from my Bible? Okay. It says, accordingly, Christian readers recognize that the New Testament writers, Matthew particularly, applied the description of the servant, both here and in the three other songs, to Jesus Christ. Yeah. So this, as we read on, we're going to see, has to be ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So as we interpret servant, and we look at the ongoing picture here, we're going to see how this servant stands out from all the other servants. So this is going to be messianic. Um, before we go to the next verse, though, I want to note there's a play on words using the word spirit. And as I mentioned, that could be capital spirit or not. But when you look at the New Testament, it is referring to the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus had the Spirit anoint him at his baptism. So, but there's a play on words. Here, God is using the word ruach, my spirit. But if you look at 41 verse 29, it's, it's just look one previous verse. It says, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. You actually got the word ruach there for wind. Because spirit can also mean wind. But it's clear God is not saying, I, I put my, my wind on him. It's possessive. And God is equipping him through his spirit. But it's a play on words. So they have empty wind, the idols, and God's servant has the Holy Spirit. Big contrast using that word ruach. Um, if you want to understand my spirit, just take a look at Acts 10.37 or Luke 4.16-21. You have a, John the Baptist actually points to this event as one of the sure evidence he has that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He says, I, he said, the one who I saw the Spirit come down and remain on him, this one is the Son of God. So John used the baptism in which the Spirit visibly came down and remained on Jesus as a sign that Jesus is the fulfillment, that God has put his Spirit on his chosen one. So Isaiah 42 speaks about the time, really, when John baptized Jesus. Now that reference there in Luke 4, 16-21, I believe I listed his baptism, right? So the Spirit came down in what looked like a dove and rested on him. And then the Acts reference, Acts 10.37, the apostles point back to that, that event. And they say, beginning with Jesus' baptism is a thing, but they're, they're pointing to Jesus was baptized, and when the Spirit came down on him, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. So that, that anointing signified that the Father was saying, this is my chosen one. So Jesus humbled himself, and the Holy Spirit really directed him, according to his human nature, he was guided by the Spirit. It says the Spirit then led him into the wilderness. So not that he needed the Spirit's divinity, he is truly God, but the Holy Spirit also equipped his human nature to carry out his task as he humbled himself, lowered himself in the flesh. And then he begins his preaching and teaching. And actually, one of the first things he does when he gets to his hometown is he opens up, not to this section of Isaiah, but a similar verse when he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. We'll see that later on, I don't know, maybe about five years in, into our study, right? <laughs> when we get to Isaiah 6, I think it's 61, 62. 
<coughs> All right, any questions about verse 1? So we're, we're getting to see God's introducing his servant. It's like, ta-da, here he is. Here is my servant. I'm going to describe my servant to you. So far we have he's chosen. God delights in him. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to bring righteousness, justice to the nation. So he's, he's got a universal mission. It's not just he's going to you know, fix Israel. He's going to fix this world. All right, if no other comments, someone want to read verse 2. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. So the servant is described in verse 2 as what? I guess you might say humble. Yeah. Gentle, calm. Um, not seeking attention for himself when he comes. So you're not going to find the servant saying, Here am I, everyone, look at me. Let's look at Matthew 12 to see what we can find in the gospel. Just look at some surrounding context. How did the servant not cry out? Matthew actually quotes this section and applies it to Jesus. Someone have Matthew 12, 16 to 17? Okay. He warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not write a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Yeah, that's Matthew quoting verses uh, 2 through 4 there and applying it directly to Jesus. And notice the context. What did Jesus, he just did a miracle, and then what does he tell the person? Yeah, don't tell him. I'm not, not wanting to broadcast this right now. And Matthew connects Jesus not wanting people to tell everyone what he's, who he really is with his miracles at that time with this prophecy being fulfilled, that he does not shout out or cry out in the streets. So he comes humbly, part of his humility. So he is God's servant. That's what it was foretold. He does have the Spirit. He is one that God delights in, but he doesn't shout out or cry out in the streets. The next picture, verse 3, A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Um, it's kind of connected to verse 4, but let's just pause there because we've got to break that down. Different translations actually render this a different way. Some will make it a transitive verb, some an intransitive verb. You know, who is the bruised reed? Is it that the Messiah won't break a bruised reed? Or is it that he is a bruised reed, but he's not going to break? It's depending on how you take the verbs there. They would have a different translation other than a bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. So that, that translation walks the line. It, it allows for both. It doesn't specify whether it's transitive or intransitive. Is there another place in scripture that refers to him as a Right, so the question is, is it that the Messiah won't break a bruised reed, or is it that he's a bruised reed that won't break? This is the only place that refers to him. I believe so, the one that I'm familiar with, yeah. Well, like we just read, Matthew quotes in Matthew 12, this very section. So a bent reed and a bruised wick. Some translations render this to basically mean he will not quench the smallest hope 
or hurt a smoldering and weak faith. So in that case, the bruised reed would be someone that's maybe weak in faith, right? Others use it to enforce the idea that the servant himself is bent and bruised, and yet he won't falter in his mission or fail. So does anyone have a Bible translation that prefers one of those? I think one of you today has the New Living Translation. That likes to pick, that likes to pick sides. Um, he will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Okay, so it does interpret there, right? So the New Living Translation takes sides. It doesn't walk the line. It says, he will not crush a bruised reed. Whereas the NIV says, well, a bruised reed he will not break. Is he the bruised reed? Get what I'm saying there? Yeah. So the New Living Translation likes to do that. It mm-hmm. likes to pick sides. If, if there's multiple options, it will pick its favorite option. And I think a good translation in that case will leave it open to be both. Because sometimes it actually is both. Right? We see Jesus not squishing those who are weak in faith, right? How he deals gently with his disciples. You have little faith, and yet he patiently deals with them. And yet we also see Jesus himself beaten and battered, and yet not giving up. And that's actually the context of the next verse. So, yeah, the both interpretations fit Scripture, right? Compare it with Isaiah 41.17 and 42 verse 4. So 41.17 you have... This is kind of interesting. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their their tons are parched with thirst. But I, the Lord, will answer them. I will not forsake them. So in that case, it's what the New Living Translation has. You know, those who are smoldering and suffering. But look at the next verse. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. So the context of verse 4 is that he's actually bruised but he's not going to falter or be discouraged. I like the play on words just to allow for both. That's my preference, but obviously your, your Bible can pick one. So the, the Messiah was gentle and patient with those weak in faith, and the Messiah himself was also weak and lowly, and yet he, as true God, he could not fail in his work to complete his mission. That's actually the main point here that Isaiah is making is this Messiah, he's going to look kind of weak, or he'll deal with weak people, but he will not fail. I like it as um, a flame he will not snuff out, because I consider myself to have not very good faith. Right. I don't consider myself to have great faith, so if he won't snuff me out, And that fits the interpretation with the rest of Scripture. That's why I say that that interpretation works. And I do like keeping that option available because it's a fun play on words. So he's going to be gentle and he won't snuff out, and he himself won't snuff out. Just uh, once again, Isaiah is doing poetry, and if you let it speak with the rest of Scripture, that interpretation does fit nicely. Uh, Just looking at how God deals with those who are weak, those who are wavering. He doesn't just say, oh, you're, you're weak in faith, you're out of here. He deals with them patiently, guides them along, strengthens them. My, my note says, so the servant will not crush anyone, provided there is even a glimmer of hope in them. Sure. Like a smoldering wick. And yeah, glimmer of hope doesn't mean that they've done enough good deeds, but it means that they have not yet lost faith by God's grace and working and have not... Uh, completely rejected their God. Okay, so then we get verse 4 we read. 
not falter or be discouraged till he establishes, notice his universal justice on the earth. Let's see if we can um, break that down. Use this verse to help define justice here. What does it mean when it says he will establish justice on earth? Justice must be established. It actually results in peace, yeah. Think about the work of the Messiah. Did, did he do any work that dealt with justice? He came to satisfy justice, and he came to bring justice. Um, the Apostle Paul says in, in Romans 3, let's see, God did this. So he talks about that, you know, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ. He said, God did this to demonstrate his justice, since in his divine restraint he had left the sins that were committed earlier unpunished. So there have been a lot of sins leading up to Christ's crucifixion that there was no payment made. But he did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time. Sin must be dealt with so that he would be both just and the one who justifies the person who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus established justice on the cross. Sin had a price. Justice had to be met. And for those that reject this payment, you know, that in unbelief don't receive this, they too will get justice when Christ comes again. But for now, every sin has been paid for. The sins of the world, you know, John the Baptist said, he took away as the sacrifice. So think about how Jesus struggled on his way to the cross and how he was said, you know, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he needed to be, you know, encouraged by his fellow disciples. And he was face down on the ground crying out. But he didn't give up. He didn't despair even as he's hanging on the cross, not until he's finished and says, it is finished and justice is paid for. So already this Messiah has fulfilled his work, but justice will finally be fulfilled when he comes again. And for those who reject his payment, uh, there will be judgment. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. So if that's how we define justice, um, I think we can expand it to what results comes from that. When he establishes justice, it's a state of righteousness, that everything meets God's standards. Isn't that what we want? Shouldn't that be what we crave, that God is satisfied with everything? That when God sees everything, there, there's no wrath that needs to be poured out, but he says, everything is covered. That's justice, uh, that everything meets God's will. And it's actually, if you look at this verse, it's equated with the Torah. Some of your translations, like mine, calls it teaching at the end of verse 4. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. Justice is equated with God's word, his will, his law being met. The Bible says, even distant lands beyond the sea will wait for his instruction. Yeah, his instruction. So Torah there, once again, means law or teaching, but it could be instruction. The distant islands... Uh, this is a good thing that people are looking forward to. Not that they're saying, oh, I can't wait for God's law to be established because then I'll be judged. No, they want it to be established. They want justice to reign on the earth. They want all evil to go away. And that's what this really centers on. It comes through the atonement of Christ. 
But it's something which everybody should be hoping for. It's the kingdom of God. When Jesus began his ministry, he says the kingdom of God is near. He's, he's saying justice is going to come. It's what's truly good. You know, if, if that's what it means and he establishes justice, what are you looking forward to most about God? I should say bringing, not braining. That's my most common typo, I think. The, the NG just doesn't come through, and brining, I guess, is a real word, so typos don't get caught. So what do you look forward to the most about God bringing justice? The new creation, yeah. Knowing that we're going we're gonna to have a created world without the evil things and the curse of sin, bodies that will be free from the curse of sin. And that's justice. If it's paid for, if Christ paid for that, justice means we deserve it. Not because we earned it, but because it was bought. Anything else you're looking forward to as God brings justice? There's going to be no room for the devil, right? No room for his lies and deceit. Justice demands that he remains forever shut out from God's eternal paradise. No more evil. Picture that. Our evil acts and deeds and thoughts have been paid for. When he comes and establishes justice on his return, there will never be evil. Other questions, comments about this part? The main point that Isaiah is making is he's not going to fail, right? And I didn't really put that in our study guide, but I think that's worth looking at here. He's not going to give up. He's not going to fall in until he finishes his job. And of course, Jesus did. He said, it is finished. And as Paul says, in doing so, he became both just and the one who justifies the person who has faith in Jesus. So he's not overlooking sin, but he's meeting justice for us. We have a change in voice going forward. Um, I guess we've got to read verse 5. This is what God the Lord says. The creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. So now we get the voice changes to you. Verse 6, I the Lord, so he just emphasized his creative power and his sustaining power, I the Lord have called you in righteousness. So now we have to figure out who's the you that's being talked about. Could be us. So in righteousness, God called us. God takes hold of our hand. Yeah, we see the word covenant for the people, kind of thinking of the maybe the Abraham's covenant, or the covenant given to Abraham. So I, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles. Well, I guess that kind of excludes us because we are Gentiles, right? So this isn't us because it's talking to someone who's going to be a light for the Gentiles. If they're going to be a light for the Gentiles, that means they have to be of Israel, That this you that he's talking about, right? The Apostle Paul certainly did that, right? So Paul fulfilled some of this. John the Baptist. John the Baptist was mentioned, right, in chapter 40. So John the Baptist ushered in the way. Let's look at the immediate context here for the you. And actually, if you want the answer, I think some of the, the servant Messiah is the only one who could do this. Look at verse 9. 
sorry, verse 8. I, the Lord, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. So God is claiming the glory. If this is the one who's going to be light for the Gentiles, a covenant for the people, who's going to open the eyes of the blind, who's going to free prisoners, release people from dungeons. Even though the Lord says, I've called you, it's, it's the Lord, right? He does it all. So when John the Baptist was in prison and he sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the one they were waiting for, isn't this the answer that Jesus sent back to them, or back to him in prison? Right. So go and tell John what you see in here. The, the blind see. The year of the, he actually quotes, I think that's closer to 61, the year of the Lord's favor. And, but yeah, this is the same sign. So you guys have good answers when you say the possible things for you, because you could mean us, the reader. You could mean Isaiah's audience originally. You could mean the people of Israel. But really, if you look at the context here, you has to refer to the servant, right? So whoever we're saying the servant is, in the first five verses, that's who he's now addressing. The Lord, Christ himself. So it could partially be fulfilled in Israel, right? Because Israel carries the light of the gospel. As we mentioned, you know, the Apostle Paul is sent to the Gentiles. But the one who is the source of that light, the one who himself makes people see, who himself opened the eyes of the blind, who himself is, notice it doesn't say, I'm not going to make you share a covenant. It says, I'm going to make you to be and I hope your translation has that, because that's what it is. I'm going to make you to be a covenant for the people. And there's Jesus. This is my blood of the new covenant. A promise from God, a one-sided promise meant for all nations. A light for the Gentiles. So when you, when you look at this section, yes, it can partially be fulfilled in, as Israel carries the light. But read through 6 and following there, 6, 7, and think of it as God speaking to the Messiah. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the peoples, a light for the Gentiles. My servant, my servant who has been anointed, my servant who will not falter until you bring justice to the nations. You, my servant, will open the eyes that are blind. So God's speaking to the Messiah there. That'll happen in prophecy that the voice will often switch who's being addressed, and who it's talking to. We just have to look at the context to kind of sift that out. Finally, verse 8, who gets all the credit and glory for the work done by this servant? So the servant's going to do all these things, establish a covenant, be himself be the covenant, be a light. He's going to establish justice on the earth. He's going to be the one the Lord has chosen and delights in. Who gets the glory and credit? God. And the only way that could take place is if God himself was the Holy One of Israel, the Redeemer. But it, uh, well, I guess Christ wouldn't be at this time one with God. So it's the glory of your people Israel is their Messiah. It's not Israel itself, as some people try to interpret this. Israel is not glorious. Israel has sinners. Israel is made up of people that have broken God's covenant they can't establish and be a covenant because they themselves couldn't even keep their covenant. But if God is going to make this happen, it has to be through the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah. And yeah, that's why verse 8 fits. I am the Lord, that is my name. I'm not going to let another get my glory. I get the credit. 
Sounds like he's selfish, but how could it be any other way if only God is holy and just? All right, shall we review these nine verses? Break it down. So let's review one through nine. All right, did we finish reading that far? No. So we read up to verse seven, right? Yes. To be eyes for the blind, free captives from prison, release from dungeon those who sit in darkness. Verse eight, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another, my praise to idols. And then this section closes here with verse nine. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. In other words, I've done what I said I'd do in the past and now I'm going to declare something new is going to happen. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. So how long before the Messiah did this was this announced? Before Matthew said, by the way, this, this section of Isaiah 42, that's messianic. How many years passed? Quite a few centuries, right? So we're, we're talking 700 plus years before the time of Christ. Roughly, I guess, 750, if, if you take this at the start of Isaiah's ministry. And God's saying, hey, didn't I tell you? That's what's going to happen. Pastor, is he, the you in verse 9, that's not still the Messiah, though, is Right, so I announced them to you. So we have a break-off there, and it's probably the reader now. Yeah. And it could be taken as partially filled, okay, the Messiah, but the Messiah is the word, hearing this word. But good catch there, yep. So we're going to have the voice change quite a bit, and that's common in Hebrew poetry, and this is somewhat poetic, this prophecy. All right, so to review these nine verses now, my servant can refer to one, Israel as a whole, or an individual Israelite, Cyrus, we see that in Isaiah's prophecy. It can refer to the Messiah, the Christ. Can you list at least seven notable things that make this servant stand out from all the other servants? Well, he created the heavens stretched them out. He's a creator. Okay. When you have God speaking in verse 5, he, he identifies himself as the creator, the Lord. What about if we specifically focus on the servant? That make him stand out. Okay, we got chosen one. And notice that's individual, right? So it's one person, my chosen one. Not Jacob, my chosen. Although sometimes Jacob from autonomy refers to the whole nation as an individual. But still, a chosen one. And we certainly see the Messiah talked about as God's chosen. That, that's really what Messiah means. God's anointed, his chosen one. So we got one. Put my spirit on him. Okay, so we got the anointing of the spirit. And yes, every believer has the Holy Spirit, but we saw Jesus specially signified as the Messiah, as the spirit was poured out on him. Recall Jesus' baptism. God delights in him. Okay, God delights in him. Recall the words also spoken at Jesus' baptism, right? My chosen one in whom I delight, or my son in whom I'm well pleased. My chosen one whom I delight. So. Certainly God, you know, through the work of Christ, now delights in his believers, accepts our sacrifice, but the only one he truly delights in because of his own inherent goodness is Christ, his son. So yeah, so far we have he's chosen, God delights in him, um, he's been anointed by the Spirit. He'll bring forth justice. Yeah, and justice to who? 
Yeah, to all nations, the, some translations say distant islands. So the non-Jews, the, the Gentiles, I think that was verse 6 or 7, will put their hope in him. So this goes beyond Israel. It's a scope that's universal. Everyone's going to put their hope in this chosen one, his, this servant. So that's four. What about the miracles that he's going to do? So give sight to the blind. Now, yes, you could take that figuratively as he's going to enlighten them, but Jesus did both, right? He literally opened the eyes of the blind, and he literally caused them to have faith and see. Look at John chapter 8. So Jesus is the light who opened the eyes of the blind. Which verse are you looking at? Okay, there you, you definitely know that's the Lord because that's the Lord speaking there before he addresses the Son. I guess one way to look at verse 5 would be God the Father speaking. So we got 5. Does the, the servant establish and share a covenant or is he really the source of the covenant? He is the covenant, yeah. So that's 6. A symbol of my covenant? Okay. So once again, the New Living Translation likes to interpret. That, that word symbol isn't found in the Hebrew. I'm not looking at all this in the Hebrew, but I, I'm actually spending a, I enjoy it, spending a good deal of time getting into the original Hebrew as I go through this, because I have my notes, and it's fun to look at that. And I just don't remember the word symbol coming up. Yeah, I think that's a little bit, mis <laughs> little bit misleading translation there. Um, is this servant going to share the light, or is he himself the light? I will make you to be a light for the Gentiles. So compare that with Isaiah 9 in the description of Emmanuel. You know, the, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of shadow death, a light has dawned. He is that light. Yeah. And finally, so I think we have seven now already, but you could add to that, he received God's glory, not another. Jesus, the Lord himself, and everything Jesus says he does is to glorify the Father. And yet you can also glorify the Son, who is equal to the Father, but he humbled himself as he says that. I bring glory to the Father. Okay, and finally, probably the most obvious, Matthew 12. I mean, we don't see it right before us here, but... Matthew points to this, verse, especially verses, uh, what, 3, 4, 5. He points us to this, a fulfillment of this prophecy is found in Jesus. So we got eight or nine reasons to say this has to be Jesus. And probably the strongest reason, because we let Scripture speak for itself, is Matthew says this speaks about Jesus. Okay, uh, you are part of the distant nations mentioned in this prophecy. How does seeing Christ as the fulfillment of this section give you comfort and hope? We're found in, we're mentioned in this prophecy. We are the distant nations. Well, it's not just talking to Israel at this time period. It's also talking to us in the New Testament. Right. A light for the Gentiles. That God had you in mind, had the Gentile people in mind as he was pouring out this prophecy that someday there would be people 
somewhere in the mountains in Arizona, opening the Bible and just seeing, oh yeah, God was thinking about me and his plan. And the Messiah was not just for Israel, but for the nations. Other comfort and hope you find here? Yeah, <clears throat> I'm that smoldering wick. Yeah, so every time you feel, ah, my faith is just, I don't deserve to be in God's kingdom. I, I wavered or I struggled or I, I hit that, that low point and God had to just carry me along. Isn't that a comfort to know that the Messiah, it says, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I think that's also a comfort to parents who worry about their children, like their children. All right. So this Messiah is concerned about the weak and does not demand, oh, you must meet this criteria before you can enter my kingdom or be part of my kingdom. There is no level of sanctification that God demands. There's only justice, which he has met the demand. And yes, God does require justice, but he's met that for us. And now, if you're struggling in your faith, if, if you put your hope in Christ, that's all you need. Doesn't matter how strong that faith is, even if it might seem like it's smoldering. And that, yeah, that's gotta be a comfort for, uh, say your child is, is weak in faith, God's not gonna say, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna squash them because their faith is not strong. Other comforting thoughts? Okay, lots in this section. So what we basically read today was God presenting, he, he did the court case scene last time, right? With the, the courts, the courtroom saying, these idols, they can't foretell anything, but I can, and guess what I'm doing now? Present exhibit A, here's my servant. And this is what he's going to be like. He's going to be humble. He's going to perform miracles. He's going to be a covenant. He's going to be light. He's going to go to all nations. He's going to establish justice. I chose him. I delight in him. And I put my spirit on him. So I foretold it. And it's going to happen. Just basically, if you're going to summarize this section. What, what might you guys pick for a, a theme for this portion of chapter 42? If you're going to pick a, a theme or title. Servant of the Lord. Sure, could be. That theme will come up again. So that's a good theme. If you're going to specify, maybe you could just describe the servant. You know, if we're going to describe the servant, maybe God calls, I put the theme, God calls the servant to be a light. But maybe you could also have God calls his servant who will not fail. Could have that as well. Yep. All right, the next section, verse 10 through 17. Since we're going to take a longer break, I think it'd be good to save the start of a new section so we can not have to jump in the middle. We'll probably pick that up next time. But where we're going to head is some neat uh, play on words again. Isaiah's going to do that throughout. Creation shouts, the Lord shouts. We're going to get a lot of um, visuals and audios for the next part. Um, he just talked about opening the eyes of the blind. Right? And also verse 42, release and freedom. The next part of this chapter is going to kind of play on blindness and deafness. And that's going to be a theme. So, and shouting and hearing, it'll be fun. Looking forward to joining. It'll be on the calendar for when we meet again in August. And once again, if you're listening to the recording, we're taking a break. It's not that we're not posting it anymore. It's just we're not meeting 
for a break as I take a, a family vacation here. Why don't we um, close with the, yeah? Back on the 3rd or the 10th? It'll be the 10th. That way I don't have to, as, as Bill says, hit the ground with my feet running, right? <laughs> sure. Just splat. <laughs> just fall splat right in my face. And, like, prophet who? Isaiah where? I just got off of a vacation. So, yeah, we'll, we'll pick it up with Isaiah 42, verse 10, as we meet August 10th. Why don't we close with a prayer about what we looked at today. Lord, we thank you for foretelling long before it came the prophecy that Matthew points us to of your servant, your chosen one in whom you delight, the Messiah. He carried out what no one else could, and he did not fail, but established justice by his cross and will establish justice with his eternal kingdom. We thank you that he is gentle, that he does not shout out, or that he does not break or smolder those who are weak. We praise you that you get the glory and that you accomplished this task in your great mercy and love for the Gentiles, the Jews, and all who trust and put their hope in you. Bless us today as we put our hope in him. Amen. May our hearts be burning with more fervor.